ate, it treat, and he accordingly recrossed the Anio, and marched slowly and sullenly through the land of the Sabines and Samnites, ravaging the country which he traversed. From thence he retired to the Brutii, leaving Capua to its fate. The city soon after surrendered to the Romans. Its punishment was terrible. All the leaders of the insurrection were beheaded, the chief men were imprisoned, and the rest of the people were sold. The city and its territory were confiscated, and became part of the Roman domain. The commencement of the next season BC 210 was marked by the fall of Salapia, which was betrayed by the inhabitants to Marcellus, but this loss was soon avenged by the total defeat and destruction of the army of the proconsul Sian. Fulvius at Herodonia, the consul Marcellus, on his part, carefully avoided inaction for the rest of the campaign, while he harassed his opponent by every possible means. Thus the rest of that summer to wore away without any important results. But the state of comparative inactivity was necessarily injurious to the cause of Hannibal. The nations of Italy that had espoused that cause when triumphant now began to waver in their attachment, and in the course of the following summer BC 209 the Samnites and Lucanians submitted to Rome, and were admitted to favorable terms. A still more disastrous blow to the Carthaginian cause was the loss of Tarentum, which was betrayed into the hands of Fabius as it had been into those of Hannibal. In vain did the latter seek to draw the Roman general into a snare, the wary Fabius eluded his toils. The recovery of Tarentum was the last exploit in the military life of the aged Fabius, and was a noble completion to his long list of achievements. From the time of the Battle of Cannae he had directed almost exclusively the councils of his country, and his policy had been preeminently successful, but the times now demanded bolder measures and something else was necessary than the caution of the lingerer to bring the war to a close. After the fall of Tarantum Hannibal still traversed the open country unopposed, and laid waste the territories of his enemies, yet we cannot suppose that he any longer looked for ultimate success from any efforts of his own, his object was doubtless now only to maintain his ground in the south until his brother Hesdrubal should appear in the north of Italy, an event to which he had long anxiously looked forward. Yet the following summer BC 208 was marked by some brilliant achievements. The two consuls, Crispinus and Marcellus, who were opposed to Hannibal in Lucania, allowed themselves to be led into an ambush, in which Marcellus was killed, and Crispinus mortally wounded. Marcellus was one of the ablest of the Roman generals. Hannibal displayed a generous sympathy for his fate, and caused due honors to be paid to his remains. The following year BC 207 decided the issue of the war in Italy. The war in Spain during the last few years had been carried on with brilliant success by the young Vesepio, of whose exploits we shall speak presently, but in B.C. 208, Hesdrubal, leaving the two other Carthaginian generals to make head against Scipio, resolved to set out for Italy to the assistance of his brother, as Scipio was in a disputed possession of the province north of the Idris, and had secured the passes of the Pyrenees on that side, Hesdrubal crossed these mountains near their western extremity and plunged into the heart of Gaul. After spending a winter in that country, he prepared to cross the Alps in the spring of B.C. 207, and to descend into Italy. The two consuls for this year were C. Claudius Nero and M. Livies. Nero marched into southern Italy to keep a watch upon Hannibal. Livies took up his quarters at Ariminum to oppose Hesdrubal. The latter experienced little loss or difficulty in crossing the Alps. The season of the year was favorable, and the Gauls were friendly to his cause but instead of pushing on at once into the heart of Italy, he allowed himself to be engaged in the siege of Placentia, and lost much precious time in fruitless efforts to reduce that colony. 
When at length he abandoned the enterprise, he sent messengers to Hannibal to apprise him of his movements, and concert measures for their meeting in Umbria, but his dispatches fell into the hands of the consul Nero, who formed the bold resolution of instantly marching with a picked body of 7,000 men to join his colleague, and fall upon Hesdrubal with their united forces before Hannibal could receive any information of his brother's movements. Nero executed his design with equal secrecy and rapidity. Hannibal knew nothing of his departure, and in a week's time Nero marched 250 miles to Sena, where his colleague was encamped in presence of Hesdrubal. He entered the camp of Livies in the night, that his arrival might not be known to the Carthaginians. After a day's rest the two consuls proceeded to offer battle, but Hesdrubal, perceiving the augmented numbers of the Romans, and hearing the trumpet sound twice, felt convinced that the consuls had united their forces, and that his brother had been defeated. He therefore declined the combat, and in the following night commenced his retreat toward Araminum. The Romans pursued him, and he found himself compelled to give them battle on the right bank of the Matorus. On this occasion Hesdrubal displayed all the qualities of a consummate general, but his forces were greatly inferior to those of the enemy, and his Gaulish auxiliaries were of little service. The gallant resistance of the Spanish and Ligurian troops is attested by the heavy loss of the Romans, but all was of no avail and seeing the battle irretrievably lost, he rushed into the midst of the enemy, and fell, sword in hand, in a manner worthy of the son of Hamilcar and the brother of Hannibal. The consul Nero hastened back to Apulia almost as speedily as he had come, and announced to Hannibal the defeat and death of his brother by throwing into his camp the severed head of Hesdrubal. I recognize, said Hannibal, sadly, the doom of Carthage. The victory of the Matorus was, as we have already said, decisive of the fate of the war in Italy, and the conduct of Hannibal shows that he felt it to be such. From this time he abandoned all thoughts of offensive operations, and, withdrawing his garrisons from the Pontum and other towns that he still held in Lucania, collected together his forces within the peninsula of the Brutii. In the fastnesses of that wild and mountainous region he maintained his ground for nearly four years, while the towns that he still possessed on the coast gave him the command of the sea. Footnote 34 the story that Archimedes set the Roman ships on fire by the reflected rays of the sun is probably a fiction, though the later writers give an account of this burning mirror. Footnote 35, upon his tomb was placed the figure of a sphere inscribed in a cylinder. When Cicero was quaestor in Sicily B.C. 75, he found his tomb near one of the gates of the city, almost hid among briars, and forgotten by the Syracusans. Chapter Xivi, Second Punic War, Third Period from the Battle of the Inigiaurus to the conclusion of the war, B.C. 206-201. After the Battle of the Matorus, the chief interest of the war was transferred to Spain and Africa. The Roman armies were led by a youthful hero, perhaps the greatest man that Rome ever produced, with the exception of Julius Caesar. The remaining period of the war is little more than the history of Pisipio. This extraordinary man was the son of Pisipio, who fell in Spain in B.C. 212. As already related, in his early years he acquired, to an extraordinary extent, the confidence and admiration of his countrymen. His enthusiastic mind led him to believe that he was a special favorite of heaven, and he never engaged in any public or private business without first going to the capital, where he sat some time alone, enjoying communion with the gods. For all he proposed or executed he alleged the divine approval, he believed himself in the revelations which he asserted had been vouchsafed to him and the extraordinary success which attended all his enterprises deepened this belief. 
Pisipi was first mentioned in B.C. 218 at the Battle of the Ticinus, where he is reported to have saved the life of his father, though he was then only 17 years of age. He fought Afghani two years afterward B.C. 216, when he was already a tribune of the soldiers, and was one of the few Roman officers who survived that fatal day. He was chosen along with the pious Claudius to command the remains of the army, which had taken refuge at Canusium, and it was owing to his youthful heroism and presence of mind that the Roman nobles, who had thought of leaving Italy in despair, were prevented from carrying their rash project into effect. He had already gained the favor of the people to such an extent that he was unanimously elected Edile in B.C. 212. On this occasion he gave indications of the proud spirit, and of the disregard of all the forms of law, which distinguished him throughout life, for when the tribunes objected to the election, because he was not of the legal age, he haughtily replied, If all the choirites wish to make me Edile, I am old enough. After the death of Scipio's father and uncle, C. Nero was sent out as proprietor to supply their place, but shortly afterward the Senate resolved to increase the army in Spain, and to place it under the command of a proconsul to be elected by the people, but when they were assembled for this purpose, none of the generals of experience ventured to apply for so dangerous a command, at length Scipio, who was then barely twenty-four, to the surprise of everyone, offered himself as a candidate, but the confidence which he felt in himself he communicated to the people and he was accordingly chosen with enthusiasm to take the command. Scipio arrived in Spain in the summer of B.C. 210. He found that the three Carthaginian generals, Hasdrubal, son of Barca, Hasdrubal, son of Gisco, and Mago, were not on good terms, and were at the time engaged in separate enterprises in distant parts of the peninsula. Instead of attacking any of them singly, he formed the project of striking a deadly blow at the Carthaginian power by a sudden and unexpected attack upon New Carthage. He gave the command of the fleet to his intimate friend Lelys, to whom alone he entrusted the secret of the expedition, while he led the land forces by extremely rapid marches against the city. The project was crowned with complete success. The Carthaginian garrison did not amount to more than a thousand men, and before any succor could arrive New Carthage was taken by assault. The hostages who had been given by the various Spanish tribes to the Carthaginians had been placed for security in the city. These now fell into the hands of Scipio, who treated them with kindness, and the hostages of those people who declared themselves in favor of the Romans were restored without ransom. Scipio also found in New Carthage magazines of arms, corn, and other necessaries, for the Carthaginians had there deposited their principal stores. The immediate effects of this brilliant success were immense. Many of the Spanish tribes deserted the Carthaginian cause, and when Scipio took the field in the following year B.C. 209 Mandones and Indabilis, two of the most powerful and hitherto the most faithful supporters of Carthage, quitted the camp of Hesdrubal Barca, and awaited the arrival of the Roman commander. Hesdrubal was encamped in a strong position near the town of Becula, in the upper valley of the Betis Guadalquifer, where he was attacked and defeated by Scipio. He succeeded, however in making good his retreat, and retired into northern Spain. He subsequently crossed the Pyrenees, and marched into Italy to the assistance of his brother Hannibal. As already narrated, in B.C. 207 Scipio gained possession of nearly the whole of Spain, by a decisive victory near a place variously called Silpia or Ilinga, but the position of which is quite uncertain. Hasdrubal, son of Gisco, and Mago, took refuge within the walls of Gads, 
which was almost the only place that now belonged to the Carthaginians, and all the native chiefs hastened to acknowledge the supremacy of Rome. But the victories of Scipio had had but a small share in winning Spain. His personal influence had won far more people than his arms had conquered. He had gained such an ascendancy over the Spaniards by his humanity and courage, his courtesy and energy, that they were ready to lay down their lives for him, and wished to make him their king. The subjugation of Spain was regarded by Scipio as only a means to an end. He had formed the project of transferring the war to Africa, and thus compelling the Carthaginians to recall Hannibal from Italy. He therefore resolved, before returning to Rome, to cross over into Africa, and secure, if possible, the friendship and company operation of some of the native princes. His personal influence had already secured the attachment of Mazinissa, the son of the king of the Massilians or western Numidians, who was serving in the Carthaginian army in Spain, and he trusted that the same personal ascendancy might gain the more powerful support of Syphax, the king of the Mossy's Islands, or eastern Numidians, with only two Quinquereens he ventured to leave his province and repair to the court of Syphax, there he met his old adversary, Hasdrubal, son of Gisco, who had crossed over from Gads for the same purpose, and the two generals spent several days together in friendly intercourse. Scipio made a great impression upon Syphax, but the charms of Shafonisba, the daughter of Hesdrubal, whom the latter offered in marriage to Syphax, prevailed over the influence of Scipio. Syphax married her, and from that time became the zealous supporter and ally of the Carthaginians. During Scipio's absence in Africa a formidable insurrection had broken out in Spain, but on his return it was speedily put down, and terrible vengeance was inflicted upon the town of Illiturgis which had taken the principal share in the revolt. Scarcely had this danger passed away when Scipio was seized with a dangerous illness. Eight thousand of the Roman soldiers, discontented with not having received their usual pay, availed themselves of this opportunity to break out into open mutiny, but Scipio quelled it with his usual promptitude and energy. He crushed the last remains of the insurrection in Spain, and to crown his other successes, Gads at last surrendered to the Romans. Mago had quitted Spain and crossed over into Liguria, to effect a diversion in favor of his brother Hannibal, and there was therefore now no longer any enemy left in Spain. Scipio returned to Rome in B.C. 206, and immediately offered himself as a candidate for the consulship. He was elected for the following year B.C. 205 by the unanimous votes of all the centuries, although he had not yet filled the office of praetor, and was only thirty years of age. His colleague was Pelissanes Crossus the Pontifex Maximus, who could not, therefore, leave Italy. Consequently, if the war was to be carried on abroad, the conduct of it must of necessity devolve upon Scipio. The latter was anxious to land at once in Africa, and bring the contest to an end at the gates of Carthage, but the older members of the Senate, and among them Q. Fabius Maximus, opposed the project, partly through timidity and partly through jealousy of the youthful conqueror. All that Scipio could obtain was the province of Sicily, with permission to invade Africa if he should think it for the advantage of the Republic, but the Senate resolutely refused him an army, thus making the permission of no practical use. The Allies had a truer view of the interests of Italy than the Roman Senate, from all the towns of Italy volunteers flocked to join the standard of the youthful hero. The Senate could not refuse to allow him to enlist these volunteers, and such was the enthusiasm in his favor that he was able to cross over to Sicily with an army and a fleet. Contrary to the expectations and even the wishes of the Senate, while busy with preparations in Sicily, 
he sent over lilies to Africa with a small fleet to concert a plan of company operation with Mazinissa, but meantime his enemies at Rome had nearly succeeded in depriving him of his command, although he had no authority in Lower Italy, he had assisted in the reduction of Locri, and after the conquest of the town had left Cuplamenes in command, the latter had been guilty of such acts of excesses against the inhabitants, that they sent an embassy to Rome to complain of his conduct. Q. Fabius Maximus eagerly availed himself of the opportunity to inveigh in general against the conduct of Scipio, and to urge his immediate recall. Scipio's magnificent style of living, and his love of Greek literature and art, were denounced by his enemies as dangerous innovations upon old Roman manners and frugality. It was asserted that the time which ought to be given to the exercise and the training of his troops was wasted in the Greek gymnasia or in literary pursuits, though the Senate lent a willing ear to these attacks. They did not venture upon his immediate recall, but sent a commission into Sicily to inquire into the state of the army. During the winter Scipio had been busy in completing his preparations, and by this time he had collected all his stores, and brought his army and navy into the most efficient state. The commissioners were astonished at what they saw. Instead of ordering him to return to Rome, they bade him cross over to Africa as soon as possible. Accordingly, in B.C. 204, Scipio who was now proconsul, sailed from Lilibium and landed in Africa, not far from Utica. He was immediately joined by Mazinissa, who rendered him the most important services in the war. He commenced the campaign by laying siege to Utica, and took up his quarters on a projecting headland to the east of the town, on a spot which long bore the name of the Cornelian camp. Meantime the Carthaginians had collected a powerful army, which they placed under the command of Hesdrubal, son of Sisko. Scipio's old opponent in Spain, and Syphax came to their assistance with a great force. In the beginning of B.C. 203 Scipio planned a night attack upon the two camps occupied by Hesdrubal and Syphax, with the assistance of Mazinissa. His enterprise was crowned with success, the two camps were burned to the ground, and only a few of the enemy escaped the fire and the sword. Among these, however, were both Hesdrubal and Syphax, the former fled to Carthage where he persuaded the Senate to raise another army, and the latter retreated to his native dominions, where he likewise collected fresh troops, but their united forces were again defeated by Scipio. Hesdrubal did not venture to make his appearance again in Carthage, and Syphax once more fled into Numidia. Scipio did not give the Numidian prince any repose, he was pursued by Lilies and Mazinissa, and finally taken prisoner. Among the captives who fell into their hands was Shafonisba the wife of Syphax, whom Mazinissa had long loved, and had expected to marry when she was given to his rival. Mazinissa now not only promised to preserve her from captivity, but, to prevent her falling into the hands of the Romans, determined to marry her himself. Their nuptials were accordingly celebrated without delay, but Scipio, fearful of the influence which she might exercise over his ally, sternly upbraided him with his weakness and insisted on the immediate surrender of the princess. Unable to resist this command, Mazinissa spared her the humiliation of captivity by sending her a bowl of poison, which she drank without hesitation, and thus put an end to her own life. These repeated disasters so alarmed the Carthaginians that they resolved to recall Hannibal and Mago. Hannibal quitted Italy in B.C. 203, to the great joy of the Romans. For more than fifteen years had he carried on the war in that country laying it waste from one extremity to another, and during all this period his superiority in the field had been uncontested. 
The Romans calculated that in these 15 years their losses in the field alone had amounted to not less than 300.000 men, a statement which will hardly appear exaggerated when we consider the continued combats in which they were engaged by their ever-watchful foes. As soon as Hannibal landed in Africa the hopes of the Carthaginians revived, and they looked forward to a favorable termination of the war. Hannibal, however, formed a truer estimate of the real state of affairs, he saw that the loss of a battle would be the ruin of Carthage, and he was therefore anxious to conclude a peace before it was too late. Scipio, who was eager to have the glory of bringing the war to a close, and who feared lest his enemies in the Senate might appoint him a successor, was equally desirous of a peace. The terms, however, which the Roman general proposed seemed intolerable to the Carthaginians, and as Hannibal, that a personal interview with Scipio, could not obtain any abatement of the hard conditions, he was forced, against his will, to continue the war, into the details of the campaign, which are related very differently, our limits will not permit us to enter, the decisive battle was at length fought on the 19th of October, B.C. 202, on the Bagratus, not far from the city of Zema, and Hannibal, according to the express testimony of his antagonist, displayed on this occasion all the qualities of a consummate general, but he was now particularly deficient in that formidable cavalry which had so often decided the victory in his favor, his elephants, of which he had a great number, were rendered unavailing by the skillful management of Scipio, and the battle ended in his complete defeat. Notwithstanding the heroic exertions of his veteran infantry, 20,000 of his men fell on the field of battle, as many were made prisoners, and Hannibal himself with difficulty escaped the pursuit of Mazinissa. Upon his arrival at Carthage he was the first to admit the magnitude of the disaster, and to point out the impossibility of the farther prosecution of the war. The terms, however, now imposed by Scipio were much more severe than before. Carthage had no alternative but submission, but the negotiations were continued for some time, and a final treaty was not concluded till the following year B.C. 201. By this treaty it was agreed that the Carthaginians were to preserve their independence and territory in Africa but to give up all claims to any foreign possessions, that they were to surrender all prisoners and deserters, all their ships of war except ten triremes, and all their elephants, that they were not to make war in Africa, or out of Africa, without the consent of Rome, that they were to acknowledge Mazinus as king of Numidia, that they were to pay 10.000 talents in silver in the course of fifty years. Scipio returned to Italy in B.C. 201, and entered Rome in triumph. He was received with universal enthusiasm, the surname of Africanus was conferred upon him, and the people, in their gratitude, were anxious to distinguish him with the most extraordinary marks of honor. It is related that they wished to make him consul and dictator for life, and to erect his statue in the Comitia, the Senate House, and even in the Capitol, but that he prudently declined all these invidious distinctions. Chapter XV. Wars in the East. The Macedonian. Syrian. And in Wars, B.C. 214-188. The Second Punic War made the Romans undisputed masters of the western shores of the Mediterranean. Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica were Roman provinces, Spain owned the Roman supremacy, Carthage was completely humbled, and her powerful neighbor Mazinissa was the steadfast ally of Rome. The Roman Republic was now the most powerful state in the ancient world. Her allegiance had been trained to a war by long struggles with Gauls. Spaniards, and Africans, and were superior to all other troops in discipline, experience, and valor. She now naturally turned her eyes toward the East, 
whose effeminate nations seemed to offer an easy conquest, the Greek kingdoms in Asia, founded by the successors of Alexander the Great, bore within them the seeds of decay. The mighty kingdom of Syria, which had once extended from the Indus to the Aegean Sea, had now lost some of its fairest provinces. The greater part of Asia Minor no longer owned the authority of the Syrian kings. Theodius was governed by its own rulers. A large body of Gauls had settled in the northern part of Phrygia, which district was now called Gaelidiae after them. A new kingdom was founded in Mysia, to which the name of Theodius was given from its chief city, and Edelus, who was king of Pergamus during the Second Punic War, formed an alliance with Rome as a protection against Syria and Macedonia. The king of Syria at this time was Antiochus II, who, from his victory over the Parthians, had received the surname of the Great. Egypt was governed by the Greek monarchs who bore the name of Ptolemy. They had, even as early as the time of Pyrrhus, formed an alliance with Rome. See page 66, 14th paragraph of chapter IX. Transcriber. The kingdom had since declined in power, and upon the death of Ptolemy I.D., surnamed Philopater, in B.C. 205, the ministers of his infant son Ptolemy Epiphanes, dreading the ambitious designs of the Macedonian and Syrian kings, placed him under the protection of the Roman Senate, who consented to become his guardians. The Republic of Rhodes was the chief maritime power in the Aegean Sea. It extended its dominion over a portion of the opposite coasts of Caria and Lycia, and over several of the neighboring islands, like the king of Pergamus. The Rhodians had formed an alliance with Rome as a protection against Macedonia. Macedonia was still a powerful kingdom, governed at this time by Philip the monarch of considerable ability, who ascended the throne in B.C. 220. At the early age of 17, his dominion extended over the greater part of Greece, but two new powers had sprung up since the death of Alexander, which served as some counterpoise to the Macedonian supremacy. Of these the most important was the Achaean League, which embraced Corinth, Arcadia, and the greater part of the Peloponnesus. The Aegean League included at this time a considerable portion of central Greece. Athens and Sparta still retained their independence, but with scarcely a shadow of their former greatness and power. Such was the state of the Eastern world when it came into contact with the arms of Rome. We have already seen that during the Second Punic War Philip had been engaged in hostilities with the Roman Republic. Demetrius of Pharos, who had been driven by the Romans from his Illyrian dominions, had taken refuge at the court of Philip and soon acquired unbounded influence over the mind of the young king. This wily Greek urged him to take up arms against the grasping republic, and the ambition of Philip was still farther excited by the victories of Hannibal. After the Battle of Cannae B.C. 216 he concluded a treaty with Hannibal, but, instead of supporting the Carthaginian army and fleet, his proceedings were marked by an unaccountable degree of hesitation and delay. It was not till B.C. 214 that he appeared in the Adriatic with a fleet and laid siege to Oricus and Apollonia, which the Romans had retained possession of at the close of the Illyrian War. He succeeded in taking Oricus, but the arrival of a small Roman force, under the command of Amvalaris Laevinus, compelled him to raise the siege of Apollonia, and to burn his own ships to prevent their falling into the hands of the enemy. For the next three years the war was carried on with an accountable slackness on both sides, but in B.C. 211 it assumed a new character in consequence of the alliance which the Romans formed with the Aetolian League. Into the details of the campaigns which followed it is unnecessary to enter, but the attention of the Romans was soon afterward directed to affairs in Spain, and the Aetolians were left almost alone to cope with Philip. The Achaeans also joined Philip against the Aetolians, 
and the latter people were so hard-pressed that they were glad to make peace with the Macedonian king. Shortly afterward the Romans, who were desirous of turning their undivided attention to the invasion of Africa, also concluded peace with him B.C. 205. The peace, which thus terminated the First Macedonian War, was probably regarded by both parties as little more than a suspension of hostilities. Philip even went so far as to send to the Carthaginians in Africa a body of 4,000 men, who fought at Zaire under the command of Hannibal. At the same time he proceeded to carry out his plans for his own aggrandizement in Greece, without any regard to the Roman alliances in that country, in order to establish his naval supremacy in the Aegean Sea. He attacked the Rhodians and Edelus, king of Pergamus, both of whom were allies of Rome. He had also previously made a treaty with Antiochus, king of Syria, for the dismemberment of the Egyptian monarchy, which was placed under the guardianship of the Roman people. It was impossible for the Senate to pass over these acts of hostility, and accordingly, in the year after the conclusion of the Second Punic War, the consul P. Silpices Galba proposed to the commission of the centuries that war should be declared against Philip, but the people longed for repose, and rejected the proposition by the almost unanimous vote of every century. It was only by the most earnest remonstrance, and by representing to them that, unless they attacked Philip in Greece, he would invade Italy, like Hannibal, that they were induced to reverse their decision and declare war B.C. 200. Philip was at this time engaged in the siege of Athens, which had joined Italy's and the Rhodians. The consul Galba crossed over to Epirus, and Athens was relieved by a Roman fleet, but before he withdrew, Philip, prompted by anger and revenge, displayed his barbarism by destroying the gardens and buildings in the suburbs, including the Lycum and the tombs of the Etic heroes, and in a second incursion which he made with large reinforcements he committed still greater excesses, for some time. However, the war lingered on without any decided success on either side. The consul Vies, who succeeded Galba in B.C. 199, effected nothing of importance and it was not till the appointment of the consul T. Quinctius Flamininus to the command that the war was earned on with energy and vigor B.C. 198. He forced his way through the passes of Antigonia, which were occupied by the enemy, invaded Thessaly, and took up his winter quarters in Phocis and Locris. In the following year B.C. 197 the struggle was brought to a termination by the Battle of Sinocephaly Dog's Heads, a range of hills near Scotusa, in Thessaly. The Roman legions gained an easy victory over the once formidable Macedonian phalanx, 8,000 Macedonians were killed and 5,000 taken prisoners, while Flamininus lost only 700 men. Philip was obliged to sue for peace, and in the following year, 